This message, this sermon will be a little bit different. Um, we're going to start out in, uh, our text is going to be 1 Samuel 18, 9 through 29. We're going to look at that, um, but then there's another uh, a way in which, I guess I better silence my phone. I thought it was silenced. It was not. That could have been fun. Okay. Well, I'm going to start out in 1 Samuel 18, and then uh, about midway through, uh, we're going to go to uh, the book of Habakkuk. And uh, I know it's, it seems like a strange pairing here, but I think it, I'm hopeful that it will be a blessing, and I think you'll see why I paired those two together as we progress through the sermon. 1 Samuel 18, 9 through 29. By the way, the title of the message is Deliver Us From Evil. Deliver Us From Evil. And Saul eyed David from that day forward, meaning after the day when all of the ladies were singing that, uh, that Saul had slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, it says, and Saul lied David from that day and forward, and it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast a javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from him and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. And Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter Merab, her will I give thee to wife, only be thou valiant for me, and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, Let not my hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. And David said unto Saul, Who am I, and what is my life for my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? And it came to pass at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given unto Adriel the Maholothite to wife. And Michael... Or Michal, Saul's daughter loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul said, I will give him her, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore Saul said to David, Thou shalt this day be my son-in-law in the, in the one of the twain. And Saul commanded his servants, saying, Commune with David secretly, and say, Behold, the king hath delight in thee, and all his servants love thee. Now therefore be the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servant spake these words in the ears of David. And David said, Seemeth it to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, On this manner spake David. And Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desireth not any dowry, but an hundred foreskins of the Philistines, to be avenged of the king's enemies. But Saul thought, not, thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law, and the days were not expired. Wherefore David arose and went, he and his men, and slew the Philistines, two hundred men, 
And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full tale to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, to wife. And Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually. Continually. Let's pray again. Lord, I pray that you would bless and strengthen, use your weak servant to proclaim your powerful word. In Christ's name, amen. On one hand, it isn't difficult to understand why Saul had animosity towards David. God has chosen David and rejected Saul. As well, the people... The people favor David and not Saul. But on the other hand, it is also to see how Saul deserves the consequences of his actions. Saul was a taker. God told Israel that Saul would be a taker. He would make their sons and daughters serve him and take all their stuff. But it doesn't seem like Saul could figure out why the people didn't favor him after they found out that what he was really like. And concerning God, Saul refused to obey, so God fired him. Although God knew who he was and would become. So, last week, we considered the tremendous good character of Jonathan and how he was helpful to David and others. Jonathan was a giver. But Saul was not one to look on the things of others. He looked on his own things. Well, he looked on things of others to get the things of others, I guess. He didn't desire the advancement of others. He actually wanted David to fall and even die. Look at all of his evil intent and pretending to be his friend, knowing all along that he desires to put him in the army and give him a position just so that he can die. That's a that's someone that's an evil person that's really after you, you know. Saul was so enraged and heartless that he even wanted to use his own children as weapons against David. The point in the text is that the people of God will go through times of persecution and that God is the one to deliver us. When I titled the message, Deliver Us From Evil, what I meant by that was a specific type of evil, the evil of persecution. There's also the evil of, there's other evils, evils of temptations and and other evils such as that. But what David faced in this situation was having to face the evil of persecution. Sometimes even persecution that had a smile. So in this sermon, we will first consider the personal, individual persecution of one of God's people, David. And then we're going to go on to discuss persecution in a corporate way. What, how we're to see that, how we're to understand it. What are we to learn from this? How do we interact with persecution? This particular type of evil 
How do we, how do we deal with this particular type of evil that we will, we will encounter? So I am a little bit hesitant to make a lot of application, like from David's experience, to make a lot of application to us personally. And it's for this reason. Now, there is application. We do suffer similar persecution at times. We have things like this happen. But, really, on the same level? You know, any personal persecution we might face individually is really nothing compared to what David or Paul or Jesus encountered. For the most part, if we are suffering from personal persecution, it would be better for us to give thanks for how easy we have it and stop whining, okay? That may be the better, that may be the better case, Yes, I know we can find comfort in this and we can read this account. But there's also ballast to that in saying, instead of just living in that moment in saying, look at all things of others. A lot of other people have been through a lot more than me. So I need to just (laughs) maybe get a little tougher, I guess. to give thanks for how we have it. So yeah, we can be comforted. And we can be comforted by the fact that God has ordained these things to come into our lives and that he's in control. But the fact of the matter is that for the most part, if an American Christian is having a pity party, it kind of deserves a little bit of an eye roll. Not that I'd ever do that, but maybe to my own self. No, I would not do that. Brother Keith, I need to talk to you. I'm really suffering. and I'm, well, I'm not going to do that, okay? <laughs> and I would probably point you to the, to the fact that many others have suffered this type of evil, persecution and so you can be comforted to know that God's in control of that and that he has he will not leave you nor forsake you he will empower you for his glory but we can also even though and this is where we're going to begin to switch gears here a little bit to move from the, from the personal and the individual type persecution that we might experience to move to a more general, more corporate type persecution that in general Christians could be facing on the horizon. It doesn't take a genius to see that more severe persecution could be coming 
maybe American Christians will even come to a point where they can look back at all of those horrible times when they were, I don't know, made fun of at the supermarket or something or made fun of at the restaurant for praying. I don't know. Look at those times and say, yeah, I didn't really know. They're not really, they're beginning to crop up. People in uh, positions of authority are beginning to feel the pressure of the ungodly influence that has begun to come over our nation. Yeah, beginning to see it. I think, I don't think this is just my pessimistic nature coming out. I think that it's, we can see the, the traverse. We can see the way it's going. So the time for sermons like this is now. Just like the warning is given before the storm hits. You know, and I know that preachers have been sounding warnings for many years. I can remember when I was first saved almost 40 years ago. <laughs> the preacher saying something like, I don't know where we'll be in 10 years. So, yeah, I've been preaching these things for years. But we don't know when it might come. So we must have these truths and comforts given from the scriptures for many years. There's some helpful things to learn from the Bible about the evil of persecution that could come our way. We must start with the understanding that God is sovereign over the persecution God or the persecution David faced. Now we'll move to Habakkuk and hear some encouraging words from a prophet who lived and preached in view of the storm clouds on the horizon, just before the Babylonians or Chaldeans attacked the people of God. God was using them for judgment. And that's something that God does. He does use evil men for judgment. Judgment on nations. So first I want to see that God ordained that David would be hunted by Saul. You know, it's, it's also ordained that we shall be hunted by evil, if you would. Jesus taught this in John 16, 32 and 33. It says, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome 
the world. I'm going to take that in the world you shall have tribulation is not meaning just the 12, just the 11. <laughs> you know, and when we think about that, we have to remember this isn't some mean God game that God is playing with people watching them fight like the crowd at a boxing match. There is a purpose. There is a purpose to our battles. There's a purpose to our battles greater than just surviving those battles. God's glory. It's for his glory. And for our joy. He brings things into our lives so that we might have a victory. He wants us to have those victories. He doesn't bring things into our lives so that we might be defeated. He brings them so we might have a victory. And then also, it's an honor to be God's soldier. Isn't it it an honor to be a soldier? The disciples considered it a joy that they were counted worthy to suffer shame. Acts 5, 41 and 42 says, And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple, in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Counted worthy to suffer shame. I remember a friend of mine who's a, uh, a street preacher, and he was... Uh, he was attacked um, uh, by a man who was um, angry about what he was preaching. Um, My friend wasn't. He felt honored that he could be God's soldier. And that he'd suffer for that. But notice it says, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Counted worthy to suffer shame. It's an honor. Far from it being a negative for us, it is a positive that God has ordained that we suffer for his name. We should be honored, but not puffed up that he's chosen us for that. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise. If life was a dodgeball game and God was one of the captains picking the players or picking his teammates, he'd pick the worst teammates first. Those who would be chosen by him would consider it an honor to have been chosen. So while we acknowledge that God can deliver us from the evil of persecution, let's don't forget that he planned it for his glory and for our honor and our victories. You know, Saul was, Saul was brutal. And as I said, would even use his own family to destroy David. Imagine how brutal that is. 
You know, we may face some brutal people at times. We may even be headed for a time of greater persecution. It may happen. Saul was brutal and the devil is just as brutal. We still have an enemy. We still have we still have a person who is conspiring for our demise, but he won't win. The devil can even use our own family members or friends at times. There are plenty of examples of that in the Bible, Samson, Lot's wife, and others. The Bible tells us that for some, they will be betrayed by their family in the eschaton. Luke 12, 53 says, The father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You know, I don't know if any of us have experienced much of that, but the point is that the devil is brutal and will use any means he can to destroy us. Another thing we should consider about David's life is that sometimes it can be for a long time. I wonder, I wonder if you ask David which enemy was the greatest conflict that he had in his life. Was it? We ask us, what, what, was, what was David's greatest conflict, greatest battle he had in his life? Goliath or Saul? I wonder what he would say. I guess if we were asked, we'd probably say, well, it was Goliath. David did face Goliath, but was it as great of a test of faith as the battle he faced with Saul? Because David faced it for years. For years. You know, it's been... It's been said before that there's a, a case can be made that Paul's thorn in the flesh was a person. And God said, no, I'm not going to take him away. I don't know about all that. I've studied that. I've been back and forth on that. God has given Christians in this country something very special. We haven't really had to experience much brutal persecution. Probably in comparison to other things, I guess, probably none. But God may be preparing us for a little bit of purifying fire. God is in control of when he brings persecution and when he delivers us from the persecutions. Both. One of the things, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, I guess, here, but one of the things more than one person said to me when I was called to ministry was that I would have greater attacks because of my position. I'd say it did increase, but I wouldn't say that it was severe or anything like what David experienced. However, I think the Bible does reveal to us that those in leadership are targets. So leaders need to strengthen themselves in the faith through the scriptures. So real briefly, we'll look at Habakkuk. So Habakkuk, 
He's one of the 12 prophets, 12 minor prophets. We don't know a lot about him, and he only wrote three chapters, but this, his letter is not the usual style of the prophets. The book is a conversation, really, between him and God. It's, it's kind of written in a style that is, it's, it's really cool. And it's, but usually, the intended audience of the prophets was the wayward Hebrews, but the intended audience of the book of Habakkuk, yeah, it is to the people of God, but it's the intended audience is he's, he's speaking to God himself. All of his people, though, were in mind as the intended audience. But he starts his prayer or conversation with a question. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear, even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou, shalt not, thou wilt not save? Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Basically, his righteous soul is vexed by the injustice, by the evil that's around him. You know, it's a good sign if our righteous souls are vexed by the evil around us. Those who are not bothered by what is happening in our country, those who are not bothered by the evil that is raising up, the injustice. Isn't it so ironic that there is so much injustice in our society? I'm talking about the little babies who are aborted and killed. We have so much injustice, and yet everybody's a justice warrior, or a social justice warrior. They're concerned with selective justice, I guess. Just the select ones, many times the evil ones. It's a good sign if our righteous souls are vexed by the evil around us. God answers Habakkuk through his own prophetic words. In verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1, he says, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful, their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. You know, here's the thing about, here's the thing about, if you, I'm not thinking how to word it, but global conspiracies. A secret agenda to dominate the world. The truth is that it isn't a theory. It isn't a conspiracy theory. The truth is, is the devil has always had a desire to dominate the world. But the men and the nations are just pawns. Now, God does use that to bring judgment. But they're still held accountable. The real enemy to mankind and specifically to God's people is 
higher than mere men. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So, a global domination conspiracy theory, it's not a theory. It's what the Bible says is going to be there. And the devil is always trying to dominate. But where I think we may go wrong sometimes is thinking that it's something new. Globalism. Think about the Syrians. They want to take over the world. The Assyrians. They want to take over the world. The Babylonians. The Romans. The Roman Empire. Genghis Khan. Hitler in Germany. Japan. And some of those many think are trying to take over the world like China or even the USA or Russia or even a Muslim country. Globalism is even older than the Chaldeans because Satan is older than the Chaldeans. Principalities, powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world. There's always going to be, well, not always. (laughs) There will be global domination eventually, and it'll be a good one, okay? But there's going to be a whole bunch of evil global domination competition, I guess, from Satan till that point. There's always going to be hasty nations who march through lands not their own, as it says in verse 6. But this doesn't mean God isn't in control. He uses these hasty nations and uses the devil to bring judgment and accomplish his will. He says, for in verse 6, for lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. In Habakkuk's struggle in his conversation with God, his prophecy comforts himself. But he also asks God to judge those who are used for judgment. You know, just because God may use a hasty nation who march through lands not their own doesn't mean he won't judge them as well. In verse 12 of chapter 1, it says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, more mine holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. And O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. But the prophet also complains that these hasty nations treat men like fish in a net, not valuing life, as you'd see on on down. But God says, though they are ordained for the purpose of judgment, those who do injustices shall be punished themselves. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, Woe to him that buildeth a tower with blood and establisheth a city by iniquity. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establishes or establisheth a city by iniquity. Builds a city by iniquity. Marching through lands not their own. Justice will be served. God is not mocked. The prophet complains of many injustices, it seems. He complains of many injustices. 
It seems that we have more and more injustice in our society. But we have to leave that to God to take care of and to trust that he will. After Habakkuk complained of the injustices, the evil that's around him, his own prophecy then comforts himself. You know, so many people are bowing down to idols that are not alive. But God is alive, and he is still on the throne and in our midst. This is, this is the truth that we need to arrive, to arrive at, that there are going to be persecutions that come. Maybe we haven't experienced them to the depth that others, others of God people have. But we need to realize that we're not immune, that we're not exempt. There's no guarantee that we won't. Habakkuk 2.20 says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And then chapter 3, verse 2, it says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. So we may see the storms on the horizon. And maybe it's not that we're dealing with severe persecution now, but it's that we are dealing with what we see might be coming. How do we deal with that? With peace? With joy? Knowing that it would be an honor? With peace, knowing that God's in control and he will never leave us nor forsake us. We'll see those storms coming. But the words that comforted Habakkuk comfort us. Chapter 3, 17 through 19 says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, Neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds' feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places. The chief singer on my stringed instruments. Maybe we think my basically let's boil this down. Your circumstances don't determine your joy. This is what he says although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. Everything fails. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Now, I know I've gone a little bit long. Hmm. Thought it was going to be a shorter message. I do want to say one thing, though. Just pointing us to God's power. 
Sometimes you can hear people talk and they almost have this idea that they almost, they, it seems like they're just, they're portraying this situation where you have these two powers, these two almost equal powers, the devil and God. Let's, let's think of, let's think of Satan's power as represented by a grain of sand compared to God's power that is the whole beach. But let's take it further than that. Let's take it, Satan's power is like a grain of sand and God's power is like the whole entire earth. Or maybe even greater than that. Satan's power is like the grain of sand and God's power is like the entire universe. Or even greater than that, there's probably millions and millions of atoms in that tiny grain of sand and Satan's power is like one atom compared to the entire universe. Or, tell you like this, Satan has zero power unless God gives it to him. And he's sovereign over it. God is our strength. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That's what we can do now and not fear what man can do to us. Now, what if you don't have God as your hope? Maybe you're lost. Maybe you don't know the Lord. That's why the gospel is the good news. That's why the gospel is the good news. Because no matter how we want to run from it, no matter how we want to hide, there is an enemy called death, and it will get you. Now, some of God's people will be taken out of this earth. But only our Lord and Savior has conquered death. Without him, you won't conquer it. But through him, you can. You can look to his death, burial, and resurrection. You can come to him. You can repent of your sins. You can bow before him. And he will be your portion. He will be your strength. Flee to him. Because even if all of this catastrophic stuff isn't going to be in your lifetime, there is a day when you'll go to meet the Lord and you'll face that enemy. I'm available to talk to you anytime. You want to talk about your soul? 
happy to talk to you. I'll point you to, the, to Christ. I'll point you to the word of God. Flee to him. Lord, I thank you.